be passing out note sheets and pencils to you if those are helpful. Please put them to good use. We also have Bibles. If you would like to uh, borrow one of our Bibles, raise your hand. If you didn't bring one with you today, we would love for you to have that so that you can follow along with us as we navigate through God's amazing and holy word. We have been working through the book of Luke for several years now, <laughs> and we are, we are getting close to the end. Um, after we finish this, uh, this amazing book, which has been such a blessing to us, we're going to take a, a short uh, amount of time to go through a mini-series, topical series. We're, we're going to be looking at what it means to serve the Lord God as an elder or as a deacon. We're uh, getting ready to institute the position of deacon, which is a biblical position. We have not had deacons since this church has been, uh, been around, and we want to correct that. We want to be uh, following the model that God has set forth for us in His New Testament. And so we're going to be doing a mini-series on deacons and elders um, shortly after we finish uh, this book here. But today we are in Luke chapter 23. This morning as we read about the unthinkable, we read about, we will study, we will meditate on the death of God's Son. Of course, this portion of Jesus' earthly ministry represents the climax of each of the four gospel books that God has given to us in the New Testament. And each gospel gives us a slightly different nuance to the same set of events. When you read through Matthew's account of the Passion, it is told from a distinctly Jewish perspective. And so as Matthew tells of the events, he tells the story with what you feel is a greater sense of remorse and responsibility. Matthew describes the events surrounding the crucifixion with an attention to the, the cataclysmic nature of Jesus' death. He feels mournful and sorrowful that his people, Israel, have rejected the very Messiah that, that God had promised to send to them. Mark's account is a bit more compact. He's a, a, a man who writes action. And so he's focused on the rapid succession of events that, that play out at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus' quotation of Psalm 22 where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Plays a very pivotal part of his gospel and it punctuates the death of the Savior. When John tells of these events, he makes sure that his readers understand that in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, all that God intended to accomplish for redemption and all that had been prophesied concerning the Messiah is finished. It is accomplished in Jesus Christ. And so John emphasizes the fact that the battle is won and it is now just on us to believe in it, to believe that Jesus Christ has done what he has said he was going to do. In slight contrast to these accounts, we will see that Luke's tone is slightly less dramatic as he tells the events of the cross. Jesus approaches the end of his life with a heart that is fixed on the Father and is fully trusting in Him. Luke wants us to see a Savior who's not panicked, he's not anxious, but is rather confident and determined, knowing that this is exactly the will that God has for his life. And this is how the Father intends for the Son to redeem His chosen people. Consistent with what we have read to this point in Luke's account, as Jesus places His Spirit into the hands of God the Father, Luke will also show us how three different parties react to what they have witnessed this day. And so let us put our eyes on the eternal Word of God. 
We are in Luke chapter 23, and we're going to finish out, not quite finish out the chapter, um, by reading verses 44 through 49. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and certain and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Is it hard for you to grasp the idea that we are witnessing the very death of God? Eternal, all-powerful, sovereign over all that has been made and yet experiencing for our benefit the terrible vulnerability of life's end. The wages of sin is death. And by taking the sin of the world upon his own shoulders, Jesus willingly takes the full measure of God's wrath upon himself, enduring the death that we deserve to endure. But how can God die? It seems impossible to us. God is eternal, is he not? He is the Alpha and the Omega. That means that He is the beginning and the end of all things. 1 Timothy 1.17 describes Him as an immortal King. So He cannot die in the sense that He ceases to exist, but He does die in a bodily way, suffering in a way that He did not deserve to suffer on our behalf. Now I'm going to challenge you to think beyond yourself for a minute. Sometimes when you think big things, it might even hurt a little bit, but you're going to be all right, I promise. Your concept of death as a human being, all of our concepts of death, is entirely based on what we have seen in the mortal world that we live in. When a person dies, there is a whole lot of existence that just keeps on existing, isn't there? Many of you have lost loved ones. And you carry on. The world continues to spin. The sun continues to rise. Existence continues to exist even when one we love has passed away. And the same will happen when you stop drawing breath. If God were to completely die, it would mean the death of all deaths. It would mean the death of all life because nothing lives apart from the existence of mighty God. Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 17 says, For by Him, and this is speaking of Jesus, For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things are hold together. It doesn't get much more clear than that. Every aspect of existence is what it is because God allows it to be so. 
And everything that you know as reality exists within God himself. All things live and breathe and are held together by him. You take him out of existence and there is no existence. That's a heavy thing to think about, isn't it? And yet in a very real sense, Jesus, God in the flesh, dies on the course, or on the cross rather, in the course of the events that we're reading about today. His mortal body grinds to a halt, its systems no longer capable of supporting life, and the spirit that had piloted that human body up to that point departs from it. Is this the death of Christ's human nature? Yes and no. He is dying in a very human way, but Jesus still has and always will have a human nature alongside his divine nature now. That is part of what we call the hypostatic union. The reality that in humbling himself, Jesus took on a human nature. The human nature of Jesus bled and died on a hill in Calvary, but it will also be that same human nature which is raised again bodily on the third day. Jesus is physical after he rises, is he not? He shows Luke the holes in his side and the holes in his hand. So Jesus now eternally has, at the same time, a divine nature and a human nature. Now you would have expected the death of God to be marked by serious, phenomenal reaction from his creation. If he is the maker and sustainer of all things, when he experiences death, even if it is not a, a ceasing of his existence, but is rather a death in human terms, you'd expect the creation to respond to that. It would reverberate throughout all he has made, and that is exactly what happened. As Luke records two supernatural events that take place in concert with the approaching death of Jesus Christ. The first phenomenon occurs at the sixth hour. The Jewish day begins at 6 a.m., so the sixth hour of the day would represent high noon. This should be the hour of the day that the sun is shining at its brightest. But here we see that instead, the sun's light has failed. What is this darkness about? It persists for three hours, the duration of the time that Jesus is exalted in the air, on display on this cross, suffering a criminal's death, the sun's light has in some way failed. Is it like nighttime? The word for failed usually is used to explain the end of something, something that has ceased or died or has been stopped. But we don't read about the soldiers scrambling to pick up torches as if it was nighttime. We don't hear about the people not being able to see what was happening. In fact, we hear the testimony of many people still being able to witness the events of the cross. So I don't believe we're encountering a pitch black scenario here, but there is surely a clear indicator that the sun was not accomplishing what it is intended to do. It is not providing the kind of midday light that illuminates and warms and comforts. If this supernatural event is, is happening, then why is no one freaking out about it? Why aren't people panicking about this sudden supernatural change. How can we explain it logically? Is it a full solar eclipse? Has the moon made its way in front of the sun in such a way that the majority of its light is blacked out? I think we experienced the solar eclipse in 2017, didn't we? Has God caused that to occur? Is it 
thick, heavy clouds that have blocked out the sun, an atmospheric cover that has converged almost like a dark umbrella of sadness to block out the light and darken everyone's vision. Is it an eclipse? Is it a cloud? Is it some other quantifiable circumstance? Here's the definitive answer for you. It is whatever God wants it to be. He doesn't need to use an eclipse to bring darkness in this world. Astrologists comment that an eclipse was astrologically impossible during the full moon. And the Passover always happens during the full moon. So scientists have said, well, it couldn't have been an eclipse. This must not have happened. This must be some fabrication. It's impossible for the sun to block out, or the moon to block out the sun during a full moon. You know what else is impossible? The earth suddenly standing still so that the sun stops moving across the sky. God made that happen in the middle of the day in Joshua chapter 10, didn't he? To prolong a battle, the Israelites needed to win against the Amalekites. He caused the sun to cease in its course. Now that uses human language to describe things from the perspective of human beings. What that means is that the sun stopped moving theoretically across the sky. We know the sun doesn't move. So the world must have stopped for a moment. You know what else is impossible? A man surviving in the belly of a fish for three days. That is, by all shapes and, and, and sizes, impossible according to the man of God, or man of the mind of man, but the hand of God can make it so. One other thing that's impossible: a man having died, being sealed in a tomb for three days, and then rising as if he is completely well again. Is that possible by the mind of man? Do we have a scientific sleep theory that is, is used to explain how Jesus Christ would give his life? We don't have a scientific theory for that. This is the supernatural power of God. We're not dealing with a being whose every action must fall within the boundaries of the scientifically observed phenomenon of this world. We're not dealing with a mere man here. We're dealing with God in the flesh. If you have a hard time trusting in a God who doesn't fit into your tidy understanding of the natural universe, then allow me to introduce you to my God. Let me introduce you to a God who is not thought up within the boundaries of the reality you know and love. He was not devised or imagined by a human mind. My God, the God of the Bible existed far beyond the laws, or far before the laws of the universe were even spoken into existence. And by the way, he is the very author of those scientific laws that you're trusting right now. The God of Scripture does not have to ask permission of his creation to do something extraordinary. If it pleases him to express the sadness of his son's death by turning the light of the sun down, then guess what? There is no discrepancy. He simply does it. There is no conflict. God spoke the world into existence and God can adjust whatever He desires to adjust for however long He desires to adjust it. And here for three hours, a sun which would normally shine brilliantly, illuminating the world, is dimmed out of respect for the death of the Savior. So don't get hung up on the how. Don't get hung up on the way that change might have had a ripple effect on other laws that you think the cosmos must abide by. God is controlling this event. It is His work. Simply know this. 
Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. And God the Father is very well pleased with Him. So when Jesus takes the sin of the world upon His own shoulders and becomes sin for us and suffers excruciatingly upon that cross, friends, that is a dark day to God. And the creation reflected that fact in a very literal way. The Apostle Peter quotes Joel 2, verses 28 through 32, as he preaches on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. He addresses the nation of Israel just days after Jesus breathes his last. And he says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Going down to verse 19, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the mighty work that Jesus is accomplishing upon the cross and the creation feels the impact of it. Now the second mighty phenomenon that we witness here in these verses we've read today involves a place that was sacred to the Israelites and was holy unto God. This very temple where the Israelites would come to worship Yahweh. As the death of the sun comes near, the veil in the temple, a great curtain in the temple, was torn into two. Now the temple in Jerusalem was constructed in different sections. And each section was progressively less accessible to people. So if you were a visitor, you had no idea who Yahweh was, you could enter into the outer courts. Anyone was welcome to come in and observe what was going on there. There was much teaching to be done in the outer courts. There was much praying going on in the outer courts, and anyone could enter into that place. Sometimes it was called the Court of the Gentiles. Now, restricted to the Gentiles, available only to those who were a part of Israel, either born as a Jew or brought in by faith in Yahweh, proselytes, converts to uh, Judaism, they were allowed to enter into the women's court, which was a court where people would go in for greater prayer, more worship of the Lord God. Songs were sung there. And then a little bit further into the temple, they have what was sometimes called the inner court, The inner court was a smaller section that was reserved for those who were set apart for the worship and ministry of the Lord God. The Levites were allowed in there. These men would come and bring sacrifices to the Lord God. They would offer incense to Him and special prayers for the Lord there. And then there was a fourth section, which you often hear referred to as the Holiest of Holies. No one could go into the Holiest of Holies except for the high priest of Israel, who once a year would follow very, very specific and detailed rituals of cleansing that God had given to that individual so that he might, if he had a pure heart and a clear conscience, enter into the holiest of holies to offer sacrifices to the Lord on behalf of Israel one day out of the year. Within this 30-foot by 30-foot room was the Ark of the Covenant. And inside of the Ark of the Covenant, which is the very throne of God, There were holy articles, the Ten Commandments that God had delivered to Moses, the staff of of Moses or Aaron, 
and the manna, a little sample of that divine food that God had used to preserve His people through their wilderness wanderings. More importantly, it was in this place, the holiest of holies, where the Israelites believed the presence of God dwelled among them. This is where God sat upon the throne, in a sense, ruling over His chosen people. Now, if you were to examine uh, the Jewish literature of Jesus' day, you would find that the temple as it was constructed in His time actually contained 13 different curtains. Two of them, though, were quite noteworthy. The curtain that separated the women's court from the inner court was famous because it was a giant tapestry that depicted an intricately woven picture of God's universe and His creation. That curtain separated the women's court from the place where the the men who were set aside as priests unto God could go in and offer sacrifices. There was a second curtain. This curtain separated the inner court from the holiest of holies. This was not an embroidered curtain, but it was very beautiful. It was extremely thick, and it was made of a very heavy material. Now, some scholars that I've read as preparing for this message, they argue that because Luke was most likely a Gentile writer, and he was addressing largely a Gentile readership, that the fact that Luke mentioned this curtain may indicate that he was speaking not of the inner curtain, of the holiest of holies, but perhaps the secondary curtain. Perhaps it was this curtain that tore in two, because the Gentiles would not have even ever put their eyes upon the temple curtain that separated the holiest of holies apart from the rest. But they might have gotten a glimpse through the women's court of that tapestry that separated the inner court. However, the testimony of the Hebrews letter that we have in the New Testament confirms that the curtain Luke is speaking about is almost certainly the one that sealed the most sacred place in all of Israel. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 6, verses 19 through 20 record, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we've talked about the order of Melchizedek a little bit before. It's this idea that Jesus reigns not just as a king, not just as a priest, but as perfectly both things at once. We see here him, he's described as the high priest, the only one that would be able to go into this most sacred of inner places. So what is the writer of Hebrews talking about He must be talking about that holiest of holies. And the thing that kept man out of the holiest of holies was not their station in life, was not their calling or their gender or anything else, but their sin. Their sin was the thing that kept them out of the very presence of God. Their lack of righteousness. Sin keeps them from knowing God in a face-to-face, intimate, and personal way as Adam and Eve had had the glory and the the blessing of knowing God when they dwelled in the garden with Him. Just as God explained to Israel through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or His ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He does not hear. Isaiah the prophet is 
is giving a scathing condemnation to Israel because their sin is so great that God is not even hearing their sins. When we sin against the Lord God, we bring a separation between what is holy and what is unholy. What is holy must be apart from what is unholy. We cannot be near to Him, lest we be washed clean, lest God make a way for unrighteous individuals like us to be made righteous. Friends, our sin does not just earn us hell and punishment. The greatest consequence of sin, in fact, is not that we live in a world full of turmoil and that the news is depressing. That's not the worst consequence of sin. The worst consequence of sin is that it keeps us from the greatest love we could know. It keeps us from the one who made us, from God himself. Just as the greatest joy of heaven will not be the streets of gold or the absence of tears and judgment. The greatest joy of heaven will be being in the presence of God Himself and knowing Him and experiencing His love in a powerful and real way. So too, our sin keeps us from knowing God. As often as it is said that all of men is God's creation, so we are all of God's children, the Scripture tells a different story. Our sin removes us from God's family and makes us enemies to God. So that is our default nature, that we rage against Him, that we war against His authority over us and do our very best to try to run our own little kingdoms in opposition to Him. That is the default nature of mankind. But what we are experiencing here as we read through the events of the cross is we're seeing how God radically redeems sinful men and women like us to make it possible for us to be reunited with this God that we have run so far from. I'm going to continue to read in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 13. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened up for us through this curtain, that is, through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a truer heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And so as the sun darkens, something gloomy looms overhead, and as Jesus begins to struggle with life, that great curtain that had formerly separated the presence of God away from sinful man, from top to bottom, is ripped into two. And that separation, that symbolic barrier that kept us from being near to God is destroyed through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is no longer necessary for those who are trusting in the work that Jesus is in the very process of doing by suffering for us on our behalf. When Jesus went to the cross, he didn't bear his own sins, for he had none. Jesus is exactly like us, human in nature, except for one key thing. He never sinned, and all of us have. Scripture teaches us that the consequence of sin is death. Jesus had no business dying because he had never earned that consequence. And yet, because of his love for God's people... He took our sin upon his shoulders and suffered and died 
so that that barrier which had for so long remained might be done away with once and for all. Those who trust in Jesus Christ and come before him with that confession that we sang about earlier, that we are weak, that we need him to save us. Those who realize that there is no religion out there that can make you right, that there is no work of man that can redeem you and set you back in the presence of God, washed free. When we realize that and confess that to God and say, Lord God, if I'm to be saved, it is only through the work of your son, Jesus Christ, that I might experience new life, redemption, and righteousness. When we confess that only Christ can save and that we most certainly need salvation, then we can be in the holy presence of God. And we will, brothers and sisters, experience that in a more full way one day when our life here is done or when Jesus calls us to come home and be with him. In heaven, we will have a perfect and a pure fellowship with the Creator. But those who are redeemed even now here on earth can experience a oneness with God that we could have never dreamed of apart from the salvation we can have in Christ. When you are redeemed, you can walk in step with Jesus today. You can experience a fellowship with him where your prayers are not turned away because of your sin, but instead he receives you and sees you not as that rejected child who is rebellious and in every way wants to be an enemy, but you're seen in the righteousness of Jesus, which is imputed unto you. What a beautiful image God gives to us as that sun grows dark, but the veil is torn in two. Friends, the temple is no longer God's dwelling place. Or more accurately, the temple is no longer made with physical stones. But God has said that in this the age of grace, under this new covenant that he has given to us, we as his people, those who trust in Jesus, are like living stones being built into a new temple. So that's why in Corinthians, Paul can say, do you not know that your body is the temple of God? There is no secret room now where you cannot enter. The Holy Spirit has entered you if you trust Christ. Matthew 27, verses 51 through 52 also notes that great rocks were split in half, that the earth shook with a mighty earthquake, that tombs were opened up and the bodies of many saints were resurrected, were raised and appeared to many in cities. Now we're not going to get into all those details because that's not Luke's story. But suffice it to say, Christ's death on the cross was felt throughout the creation. It was significant and it made a tangible impact in all that God had made. And we get to verse 46. And then Jesus, calling out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last Jesus shares his final words as recorded in this gospel. I want us to observe that these words were not spoken through gasps of breath. They were not squeaked out in a labored way. They're not whispered so that only those who were closest by could have heard what he said. They are declared loudly to all who had assembled Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus is trusting the Father with 
His very soul, His last moments alive on earth are spent in faith to God the Father, just as every moment prior to that had been spent faithful to the Father. Faithful in life, also faithful and trusting in God in the moments of His death. Consider for a moment the, the story that you might know from the Old Testament of Isaac and Abraham. Of how God granted this man who had a heart after his heart, this man Abraham, who was faithful to him, granted him with a miraculous blessing. The man had not had any children of his own. He and his wife had desired to have a family, but their whole time of marriage they had been unable to conceive. And now they are entering into the twilight of their lives. They are near 100 years old, and God comes and says, something amazing is going to happen to you. You will bear a child. And I'm going to covenant with you right now, Abraham, that that child is going to be the first of many children who are going to come from you, from your bloodline, and I'm going to bless the nations of the earth through that child. You can imagine that there was amazing rejoicing when little Isaac came into this world. You can imagine that that was not a, a negligent father who took for granted his son, but that Abraham must have adored that child, must have cared for that child. Mom must have protected that child and nurtured Isaac. And so several years later, when God approaches Abraham in a vision and says, I need you to go up upon the mountain, and I need you to give your only son to me as an offering. How difficult that must have been. Now it puts Abraham in a very interesting position. He is hearing a vision of God that he believes is from the Lord, asking him to do something that God has never asked his people to do. God never desired human sacrifice. That was detestable to him, in fact. And yet he is saying, Abraham, come and bring your son and give him to me as an offering. So Abraham knows that this God that he worships and love is a good God. So how could a good God ask him to do an ungood thing? How could God, who has given him such a great blessing and has been the joy of his life, ask him to do something that would condemn him and make him a sinner? And yet he knows this is God. And he knows that he is weak. And he doesn't always understand everything that God tells him. And so Abraham believes. He believes that God, who gave a promise to him and made a covenant with him, saying, from this child you will multiply your seed and the world will be blessed by your descendants. He believes that God is telling the truth. And so if he offers his son up to the Lord God, there must be more to the picture that he doesn't understand yet. In order for God to keep that promise, he's going to have to bring Isaac back from the dead. He's going to have to resurrect the son if he's asking for him as an offering. And so Abraham does not go up on the hill expecting his son to die and be gone forever. He goes up on the hill trusting that if he does what God says, then God must keep his promise and God will be true and he will bring that child back. But then when he gets to the place of sacrifice and all the preparations have been made and the wood is there and the knife is there and he begins to go forward with this act, God stops his hand. What Abraham did not know is that Abraham was simply a picture of what was to come. God was saying, can you imagine how much love it would take for someone to sacrifice their only son? And here on the cross, God the Father has done that. He has given 
the sacrifice. Abraham's hand was stopped. And behold, there was a ram tangled in the thicket. And God said, offer that instead. And a ram was given as a sacrifice. But there is no ram for Christ. He is the spotless lamb. He bleeds and dies as an offering, willingly giving himself so that you and I might be absolved of all sin, that we might be made right, that we might know God. 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. As Jesus comes to this point of offering where he gives of his only self, he doesn't come with a trembling voice and tears rolling down his face, regretting what he has done. He comes with a loud voice, into your hand, Father, I commend my spirit. I believe that if this is what you want me to do, you will make everything right. Peter encourages us here in verse 19 of chapter 4 that we, if we are called to suffer, if God grants us with that blessing to suffer for his name, that we should come with this very same attitude, that we would entrust our souls to our faithful creator while doing good. If you read into Acts chapter 7, you're going to see the first martyr of the Christian church after Jesus. Verses 59 through 60 describes how Stephen, who was one of the deacons of the church, one of the first deacons, preached an amazing sermon testifying to the greatness of God. And yet the Israelites detested him and detested what he was saying. And so they drug him out of the city and they stoned him to death. And as he was dying, whose example did he follow? He prayed for his accusers, prayed for his assailants, and asked God to have mercy on them. And then look what he says in verses 59. As they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. We must be as Christ, church. If he has called us to be his, then our greatest example is not a preacher, and it's not an apostle. Our greatest example is not grandpa. Our greatest example is not the preacher on TV or some Christian celebrity. It's Jesus Christ. So look at the courage that he shows on the cross. Look at the great faith that he has in the Father and follow in those footsteps. If the Lord God calls you to suffer in some way, if you are granted with the benefit of being able to be ridiculed for Christ in this world, then have that same attitude which was in the heart of Stephen, which is, my soul belongs to you now, God. Put me through whatever I need to go through so that your name will be exalted. There is a greater tomorrow for me. If God calls you to suffer through cancer and to be a witness to his glory even through that event, then say, Lord, not my will done, but thy will be done. Into your hand I commit my spirit. This body's temporary anyway. There is a better one waiting for me. Friends, I, I know there are many who are going through terrible hardship and trial right now in this life. But if you have Christ, you have a greater hope. You have an assurance, which is the very same assurance Christ had on the cross, 
is the very same assurance that Stephen had before his assailants. It's the very same assurance that Peter calls us to have, that this living hope that we, we get to benefit from, this courage that is not our own, is Jesus Christ. I may be weak, but your spirit is strong in me. And having said this, Jesus breathed his last. Matthew says that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Mark says Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. John says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Curiously, you never see the words Jesus died. You see Jesus willingly giving of himself. He is turning himself over to the Father. He is doing this of his own accord. He desires the salvation of God's elect. It is indicative of the fact that no one took Jesus' life away from him, but he laid it down for us lovingly. It was not exactly a passive experience for Jesus. Though others played a role in his death, Jesus' love for us was the reason why his life was being spent out in such a dramatic and powerful way. And so Jesus declares that he is committing his spirit to the Father. And really it has been in his Father's hands his whole life. This is not a, a new change. This is simply him acknowledging what has already been, that his life has always been in the hands of the Father. He has demonstrated an unabated willingness for the Father to lead him and guide him and direct him. And though it was in no way robbery for Jesus to consider himself equal to God, which he was, he willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father as we should learn to do. We have seen a theme that Luke uses as he draws us closer and closer to the cross. We've seen it again and again through the last several Sundays especially. Though Christ is our main focus and Christ is Luke's main focus, there are several subplots, several individuals who witness what is going on here on this hill called Calvary. And Luke desires to teach us by showing us some of their perspectives. And so we're going to close today by looking at three of those perspectives. First of all, we, we witness, or rather we see the, the testimony of the secular witness. This centurion, who was a leader of a battalion of Roman soldiers, this man who likely had no background with personal faith in God, he was not professing to be a, a proselyte Jew, we don't see any affection from him for Jesus up until this point. He was a Gentile, and blood was upon his hands. Not just figuratively, but probably literally, as it is his responsibility to make sure that these men are crucified according to the protocols of Rome. This man was instrumental in carrying out Pilate's charge that Jesus be put to death in accord of the voice of the leaders of Israel. He was certainly a witness, likely to almost the whole process that has unraveled before us as we've walked through this in the last two months. Verse 47, Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. The centurion is the last in a long line of innocent verdicts that Jesus experiences on his way to condemnation and execution as a criminal. Three different times, Pilate declares to the masses that Jesus is innocent, that there is nothing in this man that warrants an execution. 
When he sends him off to Herod Antipas, trying to get him out of, his, out of his hair, trying to put it on somebody else, Herod decides there's nothing in this man that should be crucified either. He's not a guilty man. He mocks him. He sends him back. One of the thieves on the cross next to him, even as Paul preached last week, was clear-minded enough to see that this man had no business between two thieves. That he was a man of truth and righteousness. And he professed faith in Jesus. And so this last centurion also renders the same verdict. Innocent, innocent, innocent. His evaluation did not have the power to free Jesus. He was not a judge. He was simply hired muscle. But it might have had the power to free that man from the burden of his own personal sin. We are not told much about him. But what he declares here at the end could very well constitute a profession of true faith. Luke includes this admission of Jesus' innocence and his righteousness. Matthew goes even a little further. In verse 54 of Matthew 27, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what had taken place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. There is a profession of innocence there. There is also a connection of Jesus with the power of the divine creator. It is the very same confession that Peter shared on behalf of the other disciples when Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? And it is repeated here by this centurion. I think that it is only fitting that even in the midst of Christ's suffering, the powerful saving grace that Jesus is showing is resulting in actual salvations already. We've seen the thief redeemed. Quite possibly here, the soldier might be professing a saving belief in Jesus Christ. The power of this cross is already changing lives even before Jesus has breathed his last. Luke gives us a second reaction. And that is the reaction of the crowds that had gathered to witness this event. Verse 48, And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle when they saw what had taken place returned home, beating their breasts. Now these individuals had come, why? What did they come for? The scripture says it plainly. They came for a spectacle. They came to see something interesting. They wanted to be entertained. This can be meaning a couple of things. Perhaps, perhaps there is some nobility to it. Perhaps they came expecting that if this truly is the Messiah, then God's going to do a mighty work and free him. God's going to blow away these Romans and he's going to take them down off the cross and he's going to establish him as the king. Some of them, I really believe, were holding on to this idea that at the 11th hour, Jesus was going to be the Messiah they thought he was supposed to be. That he was going to break free from this Roman rule and he was going to show these Romans who was really in charge and establish his earthly kingdom. Perhaps that was the entertainment they wanted, the spectacle. They wanted to see this man show his godly power. Sadly, many of them, when they saw him expire, thought that was the end of their dream. No way could Jesus be this one they thought he would be now that he is officially dead. I'm sure that there were others, though, who just came because they are human beings. For some reason, human beings are entertained by the sufferings of others. The ugly sin nature of man can often find itself unable to look away when something terrible is happening to someone else. So to some, the entertaining spectacle was that execution itself, the bleeding and the suffering and the crying. 
But when these crowds saw the things that had happened, and that plural means that they witnessed the darkening of the sun, they probably witnessed the earthquake that shook, and when they saw the way that Jesus held himself on that cross, it did not have an entertaining effect. They went home, beating their chests in a sign of grief, mourning the death of this man. They went away conflicted. It doesn't seem that they're far enough down the road to say what the centurion said. They are no doubt asking themselves, what have we just done? What has just happened to this man who is clearly the first prophet we have seen, or perhaps the second if you count John the Baptist, in 400 years? What have we done? Just a few moments ago, we sang a song. And I, I added this last minute not knowing that we were going to be singing the song, but it's so appropriate. How deep the Father's love for us. And there's a line that we sing in that song. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice cry out amongst the scoffers. The crowd. Those who came for a spectacle and are now grieved as the weight of their sin becomes suddenly heavy upon them. And they realize that they have taken place in something incredibly ugly. Luke wants to reinforce here that though a good portion of the crowd capitulated and joined the hateful mocking of Jesus, many did not. Many among them mourned. They did not mock Jesus. They, they didn't understand quite what was happening, but when it was all said and done, they beat their chests over the sadness they experienced from his passing. And though they did not defend Jesus verbally, there is yet hope for them. Their minds are changing as they witness God's will played out before them. And if you want some reading this week in your quiet time, go into Acts chapter 2 and read how 3,000 individuals in that same Jerusalem area gave their lives to Christ after the powerful preaching of Peter explained exactly what the cross had done. I have to believe that some who gave their lives that day were the ones who beat their chests as they walked away confused from Calvary not knowing what they had just done, realizing that their understanding of what the Messiah was supposed to be must be off. God was even preparing their hearts then for what he would do a few days later through the preaching of Peter. And a third and final reaction comes, and then we will be finished. Those who believed in Christ. Verse 49 says, And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. And these people who were heavily invested in the results of the trial, they stand by watching these things, observing. We are not told in expressed terms how they respond. We are only told that they were there. Even they do not have a definitive resolution about what they've seen. That won't come until later. Luke is... At his core, a brilliant historian. And so you don't see Luke describing the theology behind the veil being torn in two. You don't see Luke heavily preaching through his recalling of the events. Instead, you see him giving the facts and telling you what has happened because he is an authentic historian. And he doesn't want to get himself in the way of what occurred. And that is why many people give him great credibility as one who has recorded the events of Jesus Christ. We see here this group of people who didn't know what to expect. 
They were lovers of Jesus, but they had done nothing. They watched and they saw him die. And now they go back, not entirely sure of what they really should be sure of. Jesus has preached to them that on the third day, the temple that he destroyed, his own body, would be raised again and built up. And yet they're still not expecting it. But we will see as events progress. We have a little bit farther to go in this book of Luke, friends, that those who worship the Lord God will eventually have their eyes open too. That their silence at Calvary will not translate to silence in the book of Acts. But these who believe will then become vocal and will become the mouthpiece of this true gospel that we have seen on display on a bloody cross at Calvary. Next week we will arrive at the witnesses of his resurrection, without which we would have no hope. If Jesus simply dies, we are to be pitied as men and women who trust in him. But because Jesus Christ is risen, we have a great hope, and we will speak about that next Sunday. I want to give you a couple of heads up on what's going on for Easter weekend. I want you to know that usually on the first Sunday of each month, we observe the Lord's Supper. We come to the communion table together and receive the bread and the juice. Um, But because we do anticipate having a lot of guests here for that Sunday who may not yet have trusted in Christ, we're going to have uh, our Lord's Supper celebration occur during Good Friday service. And so we'll we'll be observing the Lord's table actively during uh, the Good Friday service. We hope that you can make it to that 6.30 p.m. on Friday night. Um, We're also going to be progressing through Luke's verses here. The end of chapter 23 will be preached in our sunrise service where we're going to speak about Joseph of Arimathea who comes and prepares the body uh, for Jesus and puts him in an unused tomb. And then on uh, the morning proper, we're going to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ in both our 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock services. We may be very full, friends. We are a little church, but there are a lot of people who need Jesus. So if you come, I'm going to ask you a favor. If this is your church home and you know the gospel well, if you come and this place is just packed out and there's no room, would you please be kind enough to defer to our guests and worship with us up in the overflow room so that the people who are here for the first time or who have brought a guest can be in this service so they can experience that live worship. It is still a good experience to worship the Lord up in our overflow room, um, but we would really like people who came for the first time to be able to experience that in here. So if you wouldn't mind doing that, it's not required. If you want to sit in your seat, that's fine too. No one's going to usher you out. Um, But we would really love for you to come and be a part of what the Lord is doing on Resurrection Day. Let's close our eyes and pray. Mighty God, it was an ugly scene when the sun stopped shining like it should and the earth quaked and the veil tore in two, but it was also in some strange way beautiful to see your love poured out for us in such a way that you would sacrifice yourself, Lord God, that wretches like us might experience grace. Lord, we come here today grateful that our salvation is in your hands. We come here grateful that you have done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Let us not take the cross of Christ lightly. Let us not now, having professed a true faith in you, Lord, let us not diverge back into the sin that held us captive before. Let us not be content 
to live a marginal life that likes you all right but doesn't love you, may you be our heart's desire. May you come first in our lives. May we learn to put everything else to the side, knowing that if we love you first and we love you best, everything else will be blessed for it. Lord, please fill your churches with people who don't have an idea of who you are. Please help the lost to come and to have a desire to understand the only power that could change this world truly, and that is Christ. We lift him up to be glorified and pray these words in his precious name. Amen.